everything with Rivlichtenstein was complex and subtle and nuanced. There was never a yes or no answer. And I think one of his great gifts is he taught us that life is complex and you should avoid simplicity and it's shades of gray and answers shouldn't just be knee-jerk, reflexive, wholesale condemnations or endorsements, but there are always dangers and advantages and to parse, parse our life and parse experiences and deconstruct them rather than just um, today we live in a world of flag-waving and uh, hardened, fossilized, radical politics. You're either left, you're right. If you're left, you're expected to believe in these values, or I believe in those values, rather than just saying, choose issues, assess them, and uh, realize that everything is, um, is balanced. Um, and because of this, every speech of his was very panoramic. Um, it was never just about one issue. People sometimes ask me, how come I quote Rav Amitel so often, and I rarely quote Rav Lichtenstein. And I say Rav Lichtenstein is unquotable, because <laughs> he, he addressed a particular object, but he used that as a fulcrum, or as a prism, to basically address you felt, the only way I can explain is you felt that in every Shia who was building the totality of what religious identity is, but from a different angle. So if he was talking about humanism, so he wasn't talking about humanism, he just spread his wings so far, he was talking about religion and HaKadosh Baruch and our relationship through the prism of humanism. And the next day he spoke about Avon Yira, and he spoke about Avodah Hashem in the broad sweeping sense through the prism of Avon Yira. I remember he used to speak Friday night, minimum for an hour and a half. Minimum. And during the summer, we when, said, when did he speak at the dot? Between Kabbalah Shabbos and Mars. Oh my gosh. And we'd make, we'd make Kiddush. My family would make Kiddush at 10.30 at night because they'd wait for me. And my wife would ask me, what did Aaron speak about tonight? And I said, he said Moshe was a good person. I would look at it. It took an hour and a half, but it was never just what good and what's good and what are the different forms of good and divine good and human good and the dangers of good and evil and, and paradise good and ideal. And you felt as if there's panoramic, he was building you block by block, brick by brick, building this religious edifice every time you heard a shear. Those were the shear. The essays were even more complex and panoramic. That's why the essays are so hard to read. And if you're not accustomed to reading the essays, good luck. It's, it's tough sledding. Now, what I'd like to discuss today is not a speech, nor is it an essay. It's actually a thesis. It's the closest word I can. In the late 60s, Rav Lichtenstein was involved in a think tank under the auspices of YU. And the agenda or the, the program of this think tank was to start to analyze broader values through the prism of halacha, right up Rav Lichtenstein's alley. And he wrote six or seven of these large, major, 100-page theses about these large topics. And that book has recently been published, Values in Halacha. Now, good luck reading it. It took me around four times, four runs to read this article just to get some sense of a, a bird's eye view of what the article is talking about. But I, want to I would say I, I started a couple weeks ago, but it would be more accurate to say I tried to start. No, it's hard. So. It's, it's really rough sledding. First of all, it's written in the late 60s, so all the reference points are 30s, 40s, 50s thinkers, people that we haven't heard of, and they're not part of our parlance. And, and of course, he sat down. He wasn't just writing off the cuff. He was investigating and exploring and collecting information. It wasn't seen at his academic best, and just it's just so fulsome and so expansive. But I just wanted to give you a sense of what he was discussing. He, he tackled the following issue. Is religion, when he says religion, we mean Yiddish guy, Judaism, is it consistent with humanism? And what is humanism? It's a hard thing to define, but let's just put a simple working definition out there. Humanism is a view of this world which values the human being. We'll try to delineate that and sharpen it. Now, most people would either give a yes or a no answer to that question, if you're asking that question. And by the way, most people would say no. Because certainly historically, humanism, secular humanism, has replaced classic religion. Humanism begins in the 14th and 15th century. 
highly values human beings. We'll talk about what that led to. And ironically, it has biblical roots. The forerunners of that movement are quoting the Bible and quoting Salam al-Lakim and actually quoting Midrashim. But then in the 18th century, with enlightenment, political freedom, and then the 19th century with free thinking, freedom of conscience, not just freedom of politics, so this whole movement shifts massively away from God, religion, to utopian politics, utilitarian politics. Some of you have heard of Harvey Cox, a secular city, and some of the major writers that we've moved away from God, we no longer need God because we've celebrated the potential of human beings. What's his name? Uh, who's that uh, crazy Israeli that have won uh, no, no Harari yet? He's probably a modern, a modern expression. And he comes across as very bright, very quick-witted, transhumanism, we can advance to the next day. So he's a modern-day secular humanist, if you're looking for a modern tag. But for Hasid, of course, it's not yes or no. And in this subtlety, he drills down, deconstructs humanism, deconstructs Judaism. And even if you're not interested in humanism, all of a sudden, you've got 15 ideas to be a better Ovid Hashem. And it, just, it, it ended up being that way. He wasn't discussing a topic. Sometimes his punchline is very flat. Like when he talks about human morality versus divine morality, that kid issue. So Rav Amital's discussion is riveting. Ravaran's punchline is two sentences and it's flat, but the entire encasement is 40 pages of discussing the Kaddish Baruch and the and commandments and human morality and human integrity. So you just feel like there's this tapestry of, of Jewish ideas that are unfolded every time a particular issue is addressed, even if the, even if the conversation tends to veer far, far afield. So let's start. Is humanism consistent with, as we call it, Yiddish guy, Judaism, religion? In order to better handle this, we're looking at scene, classic Brisker style, split into two questions. Question number one, how do we view the nature of man? How does humanism or humanistically influenced thinkers, how do they view the nature of man in the cosmos, in the universe? What is man's nature? Number two, how does this affect our experience, our day-to-day -day experience? By the way, the experience will itself split into six or seven different issues. But right now, these are the two mind spaces that he's carving out. And by and large, spoiler alert, when it comes to the nature of human beings, there's a lot of overlap between humanistic thinking and Judaism. When it comes to the experience, it's a little bit more subtle. It's a little bit more diverse. Okay, so two totally separate questions. How do we view man by nature? What is the nature of man? So, of course, in classic humanist thought, man is an exquisite creature, gifted with a divine essence that other creatures aren't endowed with. Whatever that divine essence is, it could be creativity, intellect, consciousness, freedom of consciousness, free will, cognitive speech, emotions, whatever we have that a dog doesn't have, whatever we have that a whale doesn't have. This is our Tzalem Elokim. We're an exquisite creature. We were gifted. And not only that, we're the pinnacle of creation, toward which creation is meant to support. So we created this world to support human endeavor so that human beings can then find a Kodesh Baruch That's classic humanist thought. And not surprisingly, this is all taken because the humanists themselves drew it from the following sources. I mean, I'm just quoting the Bukhazim sources. Obviously, they had their own. Source number one, Chaviv Adam, Shinivra B'Tzalem, Rabbi Akiva, Sviras Omer. Remember, Rabbi Akiva lived right at the time where religion was, was starting to, um, this is my, me speaking now, was starting to transform. This is the shift from paganism to monotheism, right around Krishna. Kiva is born, I would say, probably, if he lives to be 120 years, he dies 136, he's born in the year 15. So this is a, an environment that's rife with religious thought. So all of his conversations tend to be theological. His conversations with Tunis Rufus are very theological. 
Um, he asks him, are Hashem's create creatures better than human creatures? They're questioning bris mila, they're questioning scharvionish, reward and punishment. Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Ochman ben Zakkai, to a degree of Beinor Kadosh in his conversations with Antoninus. It's a lot of theology. You don't have this with Hillel. Hillel doesn't have theological conversations because they're still Greek Hellenists. They're not yet close to monotheism. But the Romans were studying Christianity in the 4th century. They adopt Christianity. So they're interested in what the Jews have to say about religion. So this is one of Rabbi Akiva's famous statements. Or source number two, the Madrash, Why did you build this? Beautiful fortress, look outside, beautiful edifice. And yet, there's no one to enjoy. Namely, before you create man, all of your creation, with all of its beauty and all of its symmetry and all of its bounty, is purposeless. Before day six, creation is still vacant because there's no one to enjoy because creation is meant to serve man. So certainly if you ask, what is the nature of man? Judaism more or less is identical with humanistic thought with two caveats. And these are the two caveats that help us better drill down to what our Kodesh Baruch Hu's expectation are us. Number one, caveat number one. There's an antinomy. That's what Lechensin's word. An easier word is a dichotomy. There's a dichotomy within human identity. We're not just exquisite and grand, lofty and noble, but we're weak and fragile, vulnerable, and we can fail. And it's up to us to decide who we'll be like. And classic secular humanism, that darker side of man, that weaker side of man, is in a stress. Man is exquisite and almost like in, inalienable and unfallible. So, for example, to quote this, or have seen, uh, well, just before I get to quote number three, and this is the voice of Kohelis, source number four. As lofty and angelic as humans are, they're also they're less than animals. Okay? This Duality is conveyed by a well-known medrash. It's actually, ironically, a parshas tezriyah mitzara medrash, because if you're following Sefer Vayikra, the laws of animals precede the laws of man. So the laws of animals are discussed in the end of Shemini, and the laws of man, childbirth, Ishaki tezriyah, are discussed. And Chazal noticed this sequencing, and the sequencing is the inverse of, let's say, Barashas Bays, where man is created first. So for Chazal, very famous matter, source number three, If a man is righteous and meritorious and serves it, you appear in Barashas even before, not just in Barashas Beis, but in Barashas Aleph. Chazal say that's Mashiach. So man at his ideal precedes all of creation. Whereas man at his weak stage, okay, if you fail... Line number two, source three. Imlav armimlo zavuv kadamcha. An insect came before you. Yitush kadamcha. A maggot came before you. Shilshozek kadamcha. Possibly defecation came before you. Whatever shilshol may mean. Not said the modern shilshol, but probably snail. So this duality is one of the Luchasin's caveats. The man is not just lofty, he can also be flawed and blemished. Number two, and more importantly, man's exquisite and lofty nature isn't inherent. But it's gifted to him by a Kodesh Baruch Hu. And because it's gifted to him by a Kodesh Baruch Hu, it is accompanied by expectations, obligations, mission, responsibility. And that's, now me speaking, that's really, I think, one of the intersections that Revolutionary makes one term and secular humanism takes another term. Because secular humanism recognizes man's exquisite nature without any responsibilities. And therefore, the path to self-indulgence and hedonism, self-experience and self-actualization is open. Whereas once 
your lofty title and stature is divinely endowed, then it comes with expectations. And that, in two words, is what we call godless Adam, the famous Slavatka approach. That man is great, man is mighty, man is endowed with princely nature, and therefore, possible for you to fail, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, possible for you to fail your expectations. Rav Lichtenstein, and, and his eye was so keen, because he had a literary background, he read text so subtly, he saw this in the Nusach HaTzvil of Ne'ilah. In Ne'ilah, we have a shortened vidui towards the end, the Chazar Sashatz, but there's a preface to the vidui which doesn't appear in the other tefillas. Source number five. Manu, machayenu, machazdenu, makochenu. We all know this. Futility, self-abnegation, self-denial. Kikol maseutau, vimei hachayen hevelefanecha, umosa hardam mina behema oyin, kikol havel. And then, atavdalta enosh mirosh vatikirel lemodlefanecha. Despite the futility and the kohelis-like nature of man, kikol havel, you selected us to stand in front of you, to serve you, to advance your mission, to advance your agenda. Or if we go back to Tehillim Parachas, Parachas is the parak that distills these two poles of human experience. I look at your world, I look at your universe, what is man? He's nothing. But yet, source number six, even though man is nothing, you acknowledge man, you endowed man with gifts, you raise man's station, and with that comes responsibilities. I wanted to bring Rav Lichtenstein's voice into this year, so there are a lot of quotes. It took a lot of time for me to parse these quotes, because, as he said, Hill, this is not easy reading. But I wanted his voice to be heard in today's conversation. So source number seven is a quote, from a religious perspective, however, regards mankind as having not only rights, but responsibilities. I'm just going to select for this. Energies which might have been channeled toward the advancement of purely human welfare are expended in the service of God. Source number eight, with the page selections, is God who invests human life with meaning. So those are the two caveats. God invests us with meaning, therefore the responsibilities, and being man can fail and surrender or forfeit his lofty stature. Okay? That's more or less the first and smaller of the two elements. The nature of man, there is an overlap in the way halacha, or the way Judaism views man, and the way humanism views man with the two caveats that it's a dichotomy and that it's divinely installed with responsibility. Interestingly enough, because for Rav Lichtenstein, halacha was always the yardstick, and he was the quintessential halachic man, and you'll see this later. Halacha, which ironically steals some of our sovereignty, we'll see later, I'm not free to do what I'd like today, I'm halachically obliged to follow certain commandments, on the same token, it's predicated upon human freedom, because halacha is a choice, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu gifts us and gives us that choice. So Rav Luchensin saw, I don't know that many would agree with this, but for Rav Luchensin, the system of halacha, not necessarily the day-to-day application, but the system of halacha is a celebration of the unique status of man. No other creature has halacha, because no other creature has freedom of choice. We were gifted with freedom of choice, and therefore, halacha is a celebration, and you can hear his voice. Those of you who have heard Rav Luchensin, read him, just listen to this quote, and he's literally in the room. Source number nine. As a normative system, it is grounded upon one cardinal premise. That's his classic word, cardinal. Who uses it? Human freedom and creativity. It trumpets forth, in turn, one central message. Human freedom and creativity. Bottom of the first page. It does not merely posit this doctrine as a metaphysical principle. It envisions freedom at every level. It makes one persistent demand. Choose! Decide! Halacha posits Jewish existence at the plane of maximal consciousness and decision. The Jew is insistently called upon to exercise intelligence and rational will. To act as an active subject rather than a passive object. Those of you remember, a gavra, not a chefzer, of course, enjoyed 
superimposing that halachic dichotomy onto human identity. Are you a gavra or are you a chetza? Are you making decisions or are you just following the herd, following social pressures, following internal instincts? So this is Rav Lechensin's first. Welcome. What's your name? Michal. Michal, welcome. This is, this is Rav Lechensin's first uh, field of study. How does humanism view man? How does the Kodesh Baruch Hu, how does halacha view man? The more tricky part is experience. What about when we shift from theory to practice? How is our day-to-day religious experience infused or countered by humanistic values? <coughs> so, first of all, Ravaran suggested that some would claim that there's a relationship between part A and part B. The more you see man as exquisite and cardinal and the pinnacle of creation, the less otherworldly you'd be, the more you'd see that life on this planet should be geared towards maximal enjoyment, maximal pleasure, or maximal human welfare, not hedonism, not in a degenerate way, but you'd be less otherworldly. You'd be more focused on the needs and the welfare of human beings in this world. The less you rank and rate man, the more otherworldly you'd be. Man is futile, man is meaningless, man is a worm, and our only salvation is the next world and eternity. You would think that to be true, it's not always true of our noted. So, for example, he took the, uh, the idea of Navardak. Navardak was one of the great Muslim yeshivas in Europe. It celebrated the primacy of man, but yet it encouraged a very ascetic, self-depriving, self-flagellating experience. So just because you value man in theory doesn't mean that you apply that value in practice. You may shift and say, well, I value man, but because I value man, <coughs> he has to live a much more disciplined life. So, excuse me, I'm just still uh, recovering from a cold. Source number 10. <coughs> in a sense, of course, the two problems are related. Insofar as one assumes the majesty and dignity of man, he presumably becomes less prone to otherworldliness. You would think the two are correlated. But, source 11, they're not true. Take a recent Jewish example. Nevardak, the school of Musser, entertained the most exalted conceptions of man's intrinsic worth, and yet counseled radical forms of ascetism and renunciation. So in theory, you could split the two questions. You can believe and regard man highly, but not necessarily indulge in his welfare. Of course, for Lichtenstein, those that know him know that he's not going to be taking an Avardic approach. That's certainly not his approach. And he's going to campaign in favor of halacha being sensitive to human welfare. And here's where I think this article begins to shine. Part two and part three, or part two and part two, two A and two B. Number one, Rav Lichtenstein is going to say two A. Before I get to specific halachic expressions, Religion in general, forget this halacha, that halacha, this exception, that exception. Halacha, general halachic system, general avodah Hashem, not just the conception of man, but we're commanded to a system called halacha. Is that humanistic or not? Answer is going to say yes, with one major difference. Then amazingly is going to start, and this shir is going to change very quickly from a conversation to a shir quality, he's going to bring six examples of where humanistic concerns participate internally in halacha calculus. So 2A is, how does two, part one is the nature of man. Part two is religious experience. But religious experience has two parts to it. One is in general. You'll see what I mean in general. Number two is, give me specific examples. Okay, so 2A is, how do, how do we make sense of religious experience? That, does it sound humanistic to us? And if so, what does it express itself? Revelation itemized three areas that he thought were reflections of um, symmetry between halacha and between humanistic instincts or inclinations. One is chesed. If man weren't regarded that highly, and his welfare and prosperity and comfort weren't important, 
Why such an emphasis on chesed? <coughs> Why is chesed such a primary? And of course, there are many layers to chesed. There's a metatsiel day to cover our own moral personality and to improve ourselves. But I remember I once, I once gave an interview about 30 years ago to a student. I walked into a town, an out-of-town location, and uh, I had like 10 interviews. So the principal had rachmanas on me. And uh, he said, here, let me help you. This boy, valedictorian, great kid, he gets in, you don't have to worry about it, move on to the other. So you can get this in. And everyone gets a fair shot, and no one gets in free. So I, I asked the kid, after he finished reading the Gemara backwards and forwards for me, I said, tell me, did you do any chesed in your life? Which is a classic question. He said, yes. I said, why? Now, there are nine, 999 right answers to that. He gave the one wrong answer. He said, you know, my, thank God, I had a very comfortable upbringing. My parents are wealthy. I never really had any distress. Who knows? Fortunes change. One day I may be poor and have needs. It's only it's only reasonable that I contribute. <laughs> Say, what are you, a chesed bank? <laughs> the bank's open for chesed. That's why you do chesed, because you're investing in your future your future recovery. It, just, it was just so off. And I told the principal, I said, nothing against him, but we're not the yeshiva for him. He needs a moral overhaul. He needs people to look into his neshama and help him. I mean, the, the first reason you do chesed is you care about human suffering and you see someone suffering, you feel compassion, you feel heartache, you feel their sadness, and you do your best. Even if you can't, you sympathize, identify. I mean, talk a little bit later about Rebbechenstein's compassion. So, why would the Torah stress chesed so deeply? So, this is quote 12. It doesn't really convey it, but I wanted to include the quote. This spirit is rooted in the spirit of chesed in an awareness of the significance of man's temporal needs, physical as well as psychological. If we just dismiss man's needs and we're just here to serve some other purpose and we're just um, cogs in some larger machinery, why would there be such an emphasis? Remember, we take chesed for granted, A, because we're Jews, B, because we have Jewishized the whole world. And, and Christianity adopted chesed as his pole, as his lodestar. In Greece, there's no chesed. This is our major innovation. In the world of ancient Greek philosophy, there's, chari- there's um, uh, uh, hospitality, friendship. There are many areas of human interaction of kindness, but they're not described as charity. People that are destitute or indigent, are not ex- you're not expected to support them. They're the weak links in the chain. Sounds almost uh, eugenistic, but um, so our introduction, again, Christianity has almost stolen that agenda from us because they've eliminated ritual. They've turned into a religion of love and charity, which thank God. But we don't realize how revolutionary charity and chesed is in the broader sweep of human consciousness, of consciousness. The second aspect which Tereva reflected the humanistic strain is the total absence of any ascetic, self-renunciating, acting, oh, yeah, with in two days, everyone has to eat, you're not allowed to fast on Shabbos, and you're not meant to be celibate, and we don't encourage complete self-denial and self-deprivation. We want to embrace this world and experience this world, and of course, we'll see in a moment, Sanctify this world. Um, um, Ravara would always quote this Gemara. He'd love this Gemara, source number 14. The Nazir has to bring the carbon chatos. And the simple interpretation of why the Nazir brings the carbon chatos is because he brings it after he becomes stomach and violates his Naziris. But if Nazir Akapo felt that the carbon chatos was not to atone for the violation, source 14, for the violation of the carbon, of the Naziris, excuse me, but the actual Naziris is altering. This very delicate calibration between deprivation and engagement. So that on the one hand, we don't endorse indulgence, and on the other hand, we don't endorse asceticism. Hashem creates a very carefully calibrated interaction with this world, when we should eat, what we should eat. And by adding extra items that are us, the Nazar, beyond just the Isriyayan, is um, upsetting 
And from doing this carefully stitched fabric of engagement that Hashem created, a very famous Gemara Baba Khan that appears several times, and of course the Rambam adopted this and he editorialized about the Nazir's larger sin, not the failure of the Nazir's, but the actual adoption of the Nazir's. Um, <coughs> just to show Rav Lichtenstein's dexterity of text, because he was very, very, I mean, he would sometimes read Gemaras for us in ways that we just completely didn't anticipate. Sometimes I hear people quoting a Gemara, and they quote it as a one-dimensional Gemara, as if that's the truth of Yiddishkeit. And the, some of these Gemaras are so flexible, they can mean so many different things. I'm not going to give examples, because we've been two hours here. But the Gemara says, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, when he died, he when he died, so, and, and he was known for his meat. That's part of the reason the Mishnah became so authoritative is because he cut, he um, combined six or seven traits that hadn't ever been combined before. He came from uh, pedigree. He came from Hillel. And he had the Masara that he learned from the Kivas Talmud. And then he was wealthy. And there was a period of detente between the Jews and the Romans. And he had great Midos. And he was dexterous of language. And it's just sort of like a, a, a cocktail, a perfect storm of different traits that made the Mishnah authoritative. Remember, at the end of the day, Revolutionary svarim that are written only become authoritative if Amisol accepts them. Shulchan Aruch wasn't accepted for about 100 years. In 1570, not everyone accepted the Shulchan Aruch. By 1700, it's the Shulchan Aruch. Similar process with the Mishnah. People accepted it because he's a saintly figure. Why was he called Rabbeinu Akados? Like we call Rabbi Salavachik the Rav. Or uh, Maran, Rabbi Yosef. He was just so transcendent, so surpassing that people, even in his lifetime, recognized his stature. So when he died, and of course there's an iconic deathbed scene, as there always is with people of his stature, he raises his ten fingers to heaven, and he says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I never received any anah through these ten fingers. So the simple way to read it is that Rebbe was the classic ascetic, and he didn't engage in this world, and that's the route that tells us, take source 17, and Tos is quoting a Medish to support his view of this Gemara. While you're davening, the Torah should be absorbed. We should also daven the tuna fish that you just ate shouldn't really be absorbed. You just need to eat it, but you don't want to enjoy the tuna fish. That's Tosis read of Rebbe. But if you read Rashi, Rashi has a completely different view. Source number 16. He's basically quoting Shmuel. I never got a salary. I wasn't corrupt. I didn't skim any money. I was an honest and, and moral leader. And I got his I didn't steal money. It's not that he didn't enjoy. Remember, Rebbe, source number eight, I won't read it. This is the same Rebbe who was friendly with Antoninus, who I'll put into our jargon. Even in the winter, he had pineapple on his table. I remember when I was growing up in Brooklyn, we couldn't get pineapples in the window because they still airlifted them from Puerto Rico. You probably get them today. But Rebbe, this was before airlifting, he never had a situation where there weren't radishes or summer fruit on his table. So that doesn't sound like an ascetic to me, unless he put it on his table for the guests, but he refused to eat it. So Rebbe, according to at least Rashi, for a scene, was this um, exemplar of this very delicate balance between engagement and non-engagement, and the Nazar violates that balance. So the first indicator that humanism influences religious experience in general is chesed. The second one is the avoidance of ascetism and self-application. The third one is um, the fact that we don't just tolerate the physical world, and we don't just engage in the physical world, but we see it as an arena and as an aspect for religious experience. When we eat, it's a mitzvah. When we make a serious mitzvah, we see the physical world. Now, in classic style, Rav Lichtenstein quoted this beautiful quote by this author called R.H. Tony. Don't ask me who it is. I work at him, so I know who it is, but I've never heard of him before. Some of the others I'd heard of before, but this person never. He was an economic historian of the late 19th century. 
evidently, which is fascinating, I guess is Ayn Rand and that Harvey Koch, that whole group of people, as capitalism is becoming culturally influential, people are questioning the relationship between capitalism and religion. Like, what are the religious messages behind capitalism? So here's one of those authors. I think the origin of capitalism, the origins of religion, religion, religion. There's some book you can look it up, but Ravaran enjoyed reading him, especially, again, I don't think it was his go-to author, but in 1968 he was preparing this expose or this thesis, so he did his, he was rigorous in his research. So Tony writes, um, source number 19, and of course Ravaran is going to adopt Tony, but um, expand on him. Tony writes, may at once accept and criticize Tolerate and amend, welcome, here's the punchline, welcome the gross world of human appetites, it's a gross world spiritually of human appetites, as the squalid scaffolding from amid which the life of spirit must rise. Beautiful phrase. The squalid scaffolding. You look outside, the squalid scaffolding. So here it's not a metal scaffolding, but it's a material scaffolding of our spirit. Our spirit has to rise, and the squalid scaffolding, which we don't reject, but we endorse. So, of course, Rav Lichtenstein is going to step in and make, not make fun of Tony, but totally squalid scaffolding. <laughs> the, the, the classic Ellie Reber has this line, because when you went to Rav Lichtenstein and you asked him a question, you were always unnerved, you were always uncomfortable, you, you, you never learned him. You, you felt you were in the presence of an angel, a film ago, a film from a different world. You were always uncomfortable. You, you couldn't imagine who you were standing in front of. And you would ask him, so Rebbe, um, you know, what do you think about the, the latest political situation in Israel? Say, well, if Pluto was there, he'd say something, and you'd be so nervous that the only thing you could do was a nervous laugh. You, you couldn't respond. You lost. You hyperventilated. So you ah, just laugh, and he would always respond to you. You laugh, <laughs> and we never were laughing. He was, no, Rabbi, I'm not laughing at you. I'm hyperventilating. It's the only <laughs> only voice that comes out. Go, you laugh. They would go on to explain. So I hear his voice. It's a squalid scaffolding. Allah does not, and this is now Rav Lichtenstein, the end of Source 19, does not merely regard the mundane order as squalid scaffolding for which spiritual life may emerge. Okay, Tony, don't, don't, <laughs> don't diss Tony, he's just writing a nice, all of a sudden Tony becomes public enemy number one. Squalid scaffolding, of course not. It's more than that. The mundane is itself one facet of spiritual life, not just an arena, but the very fabric of living. So these are the three components through which we see humanism peeking out at us through religious experience in general. Chesed, lack of ascetism, and as we call Kiddusha, Mekadish Nesachol. However, here you see Ravarin's subtle, gray nuancing. However, even though we hear humanism and see humanism peeking out at us from religious experience, there's still one major difference. And, and these are my words, but they're Ravarin's words, but I want to put them into powerful, succinct form. Ascetism, no. Sacrifice, yes. And Allah demands that we sacrifice. And that's where the shift from passive humanism is. The entire Allah experience, predicated as it is on freedom, predicated as it is on the grandeur of man, predicated as it is on Allah who demands that we sacrifice, which we'll talk about for a little time later on. And, and just how carefully he read Gemaras. He took a Gemara which seems humanistic, but he framed it within a non-humanistic <coughs> sacrifice context. Very often the Gemara will say that the Torah went cheap on us because it was worried about additional expenditures of money. We call it chasa, chasa, Don't spend too much because Hashem cares for your money. That's a very humanistic statement. Hashem wants me to have more money, more welfare, more means. But every time the Gemara applies that concept, 
it applies it within a context of a carbon in which we're spending a lot of money anyway. And the Torah just saying, okay, you're spending a lot of money, we'll give you a little 5% discount. So, for example, the two Gemaras. It doesn't occur anywhere else. And we have to know Shas to, to, to see this. So it's number 20. On Yom Kippur, so instead of using a, a, um, a fire pan of silver, the, the gold, the fire, uh, silver is a fire pan of gold. My taima, chasamona. The rest of the year, HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, you know what, you don't have to bring a gold when you're spending a lot of money for a silver fire pan. Or we bring a carbon shnelechem so we can bring, buy chitim from the shuk. We don't have to buy solace, which would be more expensive. We're still purchasing a lot. So in the context of a carbon and a sacrifice, which demands of human liberty, which diverts human liberty, which diverts human resources, Hashem introduces a, 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 an allowance or a discount, but doesn't mean that you're avoiding the sacrifice. And just to summarize, clearly, if the halacha, source number 22, rejects outright ascetism, it is no hesitation about demanding personal sacrifice. Halacha shifts the center of authority from man to law. Halacha. On the one hand, man is no longer vested with the power of ultimate decision. Human comfort is discarded as the normal ground of decision. Right? We will make decisions based on human comfort, make decisions based on Kaddish Baruch, based on his Ratzel. And not only is human comfort a human freedom obliterated by Halacha, because we submit to Halacha, but human judgment. When Moshe, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu calls Avram up to Maryah, not only is Avram tasked with submitting human decision to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, okay, I'll do it, but it's against his moral instincts, so he has to suspend moral instincts, not just moral human decision. So Halacha demands sacrificing not just our actions, but sacrificing our moral judgment. Source number 23, the sacrifice it requires in principle is not only natural inclination, but moral judgment proper. As Kierkegaard so clearly perceived, the Akeda involved Avram's ethical instincts as well as his son. That's a fancy way of saying Avram was on the Mizbech also. Yitzchak was physically on the Mizbech, but Avram's moral conscience was being sacrificed for this act, and he fought so hard to develop his moral conscience. To summarize, source 24, this is a nice way to wrap up part 2a. This is Rav It is almost ludicrous to speak of Judaism as an anthropocentric religion. Judaism is humanistic in its vision of man's worth, nature, its concern with his well-being, and its positive approach to all aspects, namely man's worth, chesed, and embracing mundane experiences. But it harbors no illusions about a man's servile position. He's an evet, a position he occupies not as a punishment for some original sin. We're not downgraded because of chet. So all of a sudden we were mighty and angelic, we were downgraded. It's a very Christian idea. But simply as a natural condition, or the result of a covenantal commitment. Namely, it's our natural state, we're, we're in Evet Hashem, and HaKadosh Baruch who created a bris into which we enter that office. And with this ends part two. Part three is a little bit more concrete, don't worry. But you see how this issue, which you and I would answer in 20 seconds, becomes a pedestal for broad and sweeping religious inquiry about the nature of man, and the nature of halacha, and the nature of chesed. And every, everything was everything. There's no, there was no moment in which you didn't feel like you were sitting at a board table five times the size of this boardroom and just discussing all of Yiddishkeit and all of Avodah Hashem and everything came into the conversation. You didn't know where it was coming next. These are not small conversations. These were large, majestic tour de forces that just drilled down into your identity and built religious identity. You're just building you through these conversations. They weren't telescopic or tangential conversations about a particular issue. The third part, or 2B, is Rav Lechensin at his best. Rav Lechensin starts to play Halachic Man, Halachic man, the premise is that halachic data should be 
the platform for theological speculation. So instead of you and me, it's another way of saying, let's have some coffee and think about what Hashem wants from me. Or what Hashem's view of marriage is. Or let's learn Kiddushin five times. Briskerize and atomize all the details of Masechus Kiddushin. And then once we get together of what Kiddushin is, then think about what that means conceptually. Or if you and I want to talk about what's the nature of the judicial system, so let's learn Sanhedrin backwards and forwards for 10 years. Then when we're finished, we have all the halachic data atomized and organized. Atomized means you take large concepts and you break it down to an atomic idea. What is the idea? What is the gather? Brisker is atomization. You take large ideas and you define them clearly and then, then become atomized categories that you can export to other areas of justice. So this is Rebbe Chazin at his best. Well, now, now that I've given this general speculative idea with all of my sources, does halach itself recognize it? Of course, the answer is going to be yes. That was you can hear, you know, where Rebbe Chazin is shooting towards what his target is. But to contrast, he quotes an incredible quote from clearly one of his favorite authors. If I had to list the three favorite authors of Rebbe Lichtenstein, well, actually, there are four. But I'll tell you a cute story for the four. It was John Milton, obviously. It was um, no, I'm, 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 I'm forgetting for a second. My head, uh, my head is somewhere else. I forgot who the third was. It was Cardinal Newman and Matthew Arnold. Matthew Arnold, uh, his cultural criticism. Don't ask me to tell you who Cardinal Newman was in the 19th century. These are people who opposed secularizing movements in their respective generations. Uh, Alfred Newman, I think it was uh, Al. Al uh, it sounds like that funny guy from the Alfred, yeah. No, not, but no. <laughs> I don't think it's it. But Carl Newman, it was, it was, uh, so anyway, so he quoted him very often. The, the fourth person he quoted was, and I, well, I'll tell you the story later if we have a little bit of time, because it, it sinks in one John Henry Newman. John Henry Newman. 19th century, Hillel? 1848. Okay. And died 1890, so basically, oh, wow. basically the 19th century, 19th century, almost all of it. Okay. Newman is going to say something more from, and you could ever, than any firm Jew would ever say. Get ready. And ironically, Rav is going to buy into it, but he's going to end around it. Of course we accept what Newman says, but he's wrong practically. So what does Newman say? Newman says basically, halacha, avodah Hashem, as we would say, the punctilious details of one single mitzvah, is more important than any human calculus. Namely, if everything out there were to be destroyed, but one mitzvah is performed, that's a better situation than if the mitzvah is omitted and life continues to prosper. A complete, complete um, reordering of religious calculus. Human welfare is completely, completely insignificant when held up to divine will and divine law. Happens to be Hashem wants human welfare, but if you, th- if you try to Separate the two. Divine law, Hashem's will. Listen to Cardinal Newman saying it in the most extreme fashion. Beautiful quote. He holds, source 25. It's better for the sun and the moon to drop from heaven. Basically, apocalypse. And for the earth to fail. Everything fall apart. And for all the many millions who are upon it to die of starvation in extremist agony. Who cares? Then one soul will say, but should commit one venial sin, should tell one willful untruth, or should steal one poor far thing without excuse. Worse than, a worse fate than the world destroyed, the apocalypse, is an affair. Because, of course, if you deconstruct it, an affair opposes Hashem's will. What could be worse than disobeying Hashem's will? So do we accept that? Do we not accept it? Of course we accept it in the absolute sense. 
But it just so happens that part of Hashem's will is human prosperity. And I could prove it to you, not just in general, but I could prove it to you by looking at the roster of Halacha. And Ravaran itemizes six areas, which I won't go into, six areas of Halacha, which he feels indicate that human concerns are not just external overtallies of Halacha, but are internal to the Halacha calculus. And these are, very, very, very briefly, Pikuach Nefesh. That's really not fair. Because even if you didn't take a humanistic vision, you need Pikuach Nefesh because you need to have humans to connect. It's the Shabbos calculus. Save someone about the Shabbos for the next Shabbos. So even if you took a degraded view of human experience, you'd still campaign in favor of Pikuach Nefesh. It's more when the Rambam quotes Pikuach Nefesh, the way he editorializes it, that Kosh Baruch wins prosperity, and Mishpatei Tarach Nebuchasad Ba'olam. So if we have some time, I'll read the Rambam. But the other ones are really fascinating. Kavit Abrias, human dignity. Dar Shalom, social harmony, domestic bliss. Tsar, where Halacha takes Tsar into account. Shasat Chak slash Hefzin Merubah. I say six and then five. Have some room. Now the problem of Lichtenstein has is that Bikuach Nefesh is carefully, carefully mapped. We know the applications, we know the laws. Less so with Kavit Abrios, and less so with Dar HaShal in particular. We have very, very limited halachic applications of Dar HaShal. Essentially, you're looking at three or four Gemaras, which protect the dignity of someone's hygiene. Let's say, in theory, there are certain cases where if the price of disrobing your shotness would be to expose yourself in public, in certain cases, if it's only Yasser Durban and B'Shev Ve'altas, it's a big machlok as we've shown it. But it's very, very limited in scope. Back to the couple minutes, um, um, Big Dekhi Right. You're talking about um, Dr. Shalom? Kavad Abriyas. Um, there's a Kavad Abriyas about removing the mace to a Carmelist, the Gemara and Shabbos, which is all Yasid Rabbanon. This is Darach Hisham about bringing basically toilet paper to the roof. We didn't tell us have some rubber there. Toilet paper was Rabbanon, so can you move Rabbanon and Shabbos? That's Eva. It's not Darach Hisham. It doesn't say Darach Hisham. It doesn't say Kavad Abriyas. This is human dignity. No, no, Darach Hisham. No. So when it comes to Kavad Abriyas, we don't really have broad scale applications. We have very few applications, and we've shown them severely limited. But yet, Rav Aaron wants to expand it. So you hear this halachic tension. He's working within the context of halacha calculus, but he doesn't have that much to support. So, for example, he quotes, I'll just read through these very quickly with you. He quotes, for example, a um, source number 29, for example. The value of Kavit Abrios as expressed by non-halachic statements. So, for example, according to one day, in the Mordechai and Shabbos, you cover the bread Shabbos morning, not just Friday night. You cover the bread Friday night because of the towel that covered the mun Friday. But there's no mun that fell on Shabbos, and there's no towel when they ate the bread on Shabbos. So why would you cover the bread Shabbos morning? So we all know the Mordechai, because you don't want to embarrass the bread while you make Kiddush. Kavanashal, the bread isn't insulted. It's an inanimate object. This to Ravaran indicated how sensitive we are to cover the brios that if we take care to protect the dignity of the bread, it will spill over to human relations and we'll protect each other's dignity. Or the Gemara, uh, the Medrash about, um, no, but we'll get to that in a moment. If you take a look at Rashi, Rashi just to get a little halach in here, we don't really have a source for Kavad Abrios. The Gemara talks about Gado Kavad Abrios, Shadoch there's no Makor for that. Rashi, in Shabbos, based on the Gemara in Barachos, believes the Makor is 
Nisalamta mehem, that if a Talmud Chacham or an older person sees a lost item, and it will be beneath their dignity to retrieve the lost item, he doesn't have to achieve it. Pavmashat ayachal Most people assume that to be internal that Hashem Zaveda has a clause allowing neglect. But Rashi believes, as Rashi in Shabbos, source number 31, the Chsiv, this is Rashi explaining Kavad Abrios, Vesalamta Mehem, Prat Lazakim Menachemichabodo. So Rashi applies the Vesalamta Mehem, the Pamashat Yachalasalim, as a general principle for Kavad Abrios. Or when the Rambam talks about Kavad Abrios, he gets into one of his editorials. The Rambam is 98% halacha legalese. But there are editorials generally at the end of each section, but sometimes he threads these editorials even in the middle. So here's an example. Describing a, a, a judge who could be very glib and very insensitive to human needs because he's wielding authority and he should wield authority. Source number 32. So the Rambam isn't really applying Kavad Abrios to any halachic context. There's no halacha of this then. So this is more of a general bit of guidance to Dayanim. Keep Kavad Abrios in mind. And then the Rambam speaks about it also in the that if, let's say, you're a Kohen and you're following a mourner, and the mourner walks through an area which has Truma de Rabbanan, the example of Esa Pras, which has certain body parts that may or may not exist, that's only Asa Mid Rabbanan, you're only telling Mid Rabbanan, you're a Kohen, you should follow that mourner. I think, well, I'll get to the halachic applications in a moment. So Kavad Abrius is very wishy-washy. It's very ambiguous where it should or shouldn't be applied, even more so with Dar Shalom. Where's the classic Dar Shalom? Beishamai Beishilo. Ketzad Merakta Nathayakala. But when it comes to honesty and dishonesty, it may not be Dar Shalom. The Gemara never explains Beishilo's Kula based on Dar Shalom. It could be. It's not a lie because subjective beauty and these are things that you should say. And just because you tell a lie doesn't mean that Dar Shalom is overriding Shekhar. That's just one way of interpreting the Gemara. So where do you have Darche Shalom creating, a, excuse me, Darche Shalom creating an override of real halachas? The only case we have is like Mar and Shabbos. If you don't have enough money for Ner Chanukah and Ner Shabbos, you should purchase Ner Shabbos because of Shalom bias. In that case, not social bliss, not social harmony, but domestic bliss. And that's really all. That's the only indication you have. Rabbi labored to prove that it may be extant, it may be expressing itself in other areas. And this was the pretty much the second half of this 100-page article, which he, it became a sheer quality applying all the sheets that we've shown him, to try to reinforce, reinforce that there are internal humanistic elements that influence Allah. This comes from, and this I'll conclude, I just want to itemize a few interesting points on my own. This comes from a very interesting Trivas Harama. There was a Trivas Harama, I forget the exact detail, but Ravara quotes this liberally in his essay, where basically, what happened? Yeah, what happened was, yeah, there was a Ketana, who was engaged, and then they pulled out the dowry, so the family broke the engagement, and then all the uncles got together, and they encouraged the father to continue providing the dowry, and the only option was to conduct the Kiddushan on Shabbos, which is Asr. It's a mission in Beitza. You can't get any clearer than that. The Ramad did it anyway. Yeah, the Ramad did it anyway, correct. He was afraid the husband would change his mind if right. he didn't do it right away. He didn't do it right away. And essentially, it's Ramah basically saying, Kavad Abrios, Darche Shalom. And he finds all this Talmudic sophistry, maybe possibly Rabbeinu Tam, even though most cases we don't possibly Rabbeinu Tam, and Rashi, all these diukim that really don't hold water. And by the way, he was roundly rejected, and he had to defend himself. But he uses this truva as an example of trying to squirrel together Darche Shalom, Kavad Abrios elements. And then Ravaran goes off in a general exposition about 
why poskim are very hesitant and reluctant to apply it broadly. Because obviously, once you introduce Dach Yishalom and Kevin Abriyas, all of halacha could be essentially trampled. But he says you have to be sensitive to the dangers of under-application, not just over-application. Because under-application will create a type of psaac which appears harsh and insensitive, and will cast religion as insensitive to human needs or disconnected to human needs. That's just the last quote here. Consequently, the failure to invoke these dispensations in any but the most extreme cases, but he wrote their position in popular awareness position as central values, and he really wrote the primacy of these values. So that's the best I can do to put this rigorous, challenging essay into focus. Where do you find the essay? Values in Halacha. It's a book. It's, it's a book. It's just it's printed a book. by the Yeshiva. If you, if you want a copy, just leave me your address. But, but what I want to itemize very, very briefly is how I feel this humanistic strain reflected itself in Rebuchensee. He discussed how it reflected itself in Halacha. I want to talk about my Rebbe just for five, ten minutes, and I'll just be very, very brief, but I feel this is at the heart of who he was. Number one, um, Taramada. Rebuchensee's Taramada was humanistic. What do I mean? The Rav believed that by comparing religious systems and theological thought of other religions to the theology of Judaism, by comparing those large systems, you can understand deeper wisdom, deeper depths of Judaism. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So there I've held up Judaism compared to Hegel, Judaism to Kant, Judaism to Kierkegaard, Judaism to the Greek Buddha, all these large systems of human thought. And I think the Rav was a consummate Taramadanik in that sense, in the way we apply it. I'll say something very drastic, of course, it's nomenclature, it's all semantics. I don't think Rebuchasim was a Taramada person. What I mean is as follows. Rebuchasim was a humanist. He believed deeply in human beings. He trusted human beings, respected human beings, taught us to respect human beings, the dignity of the human condition. This is who he was. As part of his respect for human beings, he deeply respected people of wisdom, articulated fresh ideas and, and high ideas. And, and if someone had something important to say about religion or life or morality, he wanted to hear what they said. Be, to be a better Ovet Hashem. He once told me that reading literature is a Hachshem Mitzvah for Ben Adam Because you understand relationships and emotions and needs, and that you'll be a better father, you'll be a better husband, you'll be a better friend. Uh, I, remember, I remember this, I'll tell you two stories which conveys this to me. Number one, when his father came to the yeshiva, and his father was blind and senile to the end of his life, and to watch Rav Lachazim, Kibar Aim is the area of halacha you absolutely can't succeed at just by reading the Shulchan Aruch. You can read the Shulchan Aruch, from Haim Bismargi, be the biggest bucky, and be terrible at Kibar Aim. you have to see it in the flesh. If you have real role models of Kibar Aim, you'll be good at it, and if not, because it's just too complex, and such a web of emotions. And just to watch him with his father, and the care he took for his father, so that one job is his father was there, he's already blind, senile, and Ram gave a shear, can you give an aliyah to a blind man? We know what the answer would be. But just to see the halachic struggle. And then at the end of this year, he quoted Milton, who wrote a poem called Samson Agonistes, about Shimshon being blind in prison. I remember Ravarin telling me, I don't know if it was at that point, he said, I don't think that Rav Kahana was less important than Milton. Rav Kahana had more important things to do than think about blindness. But if I want to climb into the mind space of my father, I want to read about a blind poet, Milton, who wrote about a blind prophet, Shimshon, because I can understand blindness through that prison. Here's Ravarin trying to be as best a son as he could, as sympathetic a human being as he could, and he just felt like he, had, he needed access to information that our Chazal didn't provide, because Chazal were involved in other areas. 
This is not combining large systems. It's understanding the base of Mikdash. I want to be an Ovid Hashem. To be an Ovid Hashem is not just how many black Gemara I learn, but how am I as a person. And there are other people who spoke about being a good person that I can learn from, or spoke about religion that I can learn from. What was the other example? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I apologize. I'm still very jet-lagged. But the, but the second example, I, I had a third example, but this is, this is a perfect example. One Friday night, Ravaron was speaking with Parshas Barishas about Chet Adam Arisha. Everyone in the front row was falling asleep. 30 people, the whole base matters is asleep. Because it's long, and Ravaron was long. Ravaron was challenging strength. To make it through a share, you, you have to build. It's like a marathon. You have to build strength and endurance. It wasn't easy. Now, these articles aren't easy. And then in the middle of the speech, he goes, screams at the top of his lungs, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Immediately, 30 heads shot on Did he just quote Mother Goose? <laughs> Evidently, that's a parable or a metaphor for the fall of man, that man fell so precipitously that all the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put him back together again. After the Shir Kuali, all the Israelis came over. Misa Humpty Dumpty. Now, I may not know the Rav that well. I don't know if anyone knows him better than me, but I can't imagine in my wildest dreams the Rav quoting Humpty Dumpty. I could see him quoting Socrates. I could see him quoting Khan. I could see him quoting Plato. I can't see him quoting Humpty Dumpty. It was a totally different feel. The Rav was describing these vast, large articulations of religion, how they Rav was just going to be a better Ovid Hashem. And if I could quote Humpty Dumpty or quote Bernard Dane coach, Newt uh, Rodney, the, the field from which he was, I never heard Rav Aaron say this word. It's fascinating. I heard him say it once. Lahavdil. You know, people sometimes say this is what we believe, Lahavdil. He never said Lahavdil. I don't think he felt it was Avdol. He was trying to be an Ovid Hashem and he respected human beings. And I think that unfortunately we've moved away from that as he's uh, uh, implying in 1967. Somehow religious people are starting to lose respect for non-religious people, respect for people, respect for dignity, and maybe we can restore some of that. Obviously, number two, Goyim, uh, as an offshoot of what I said, or of our, you know, uh, drained into us and uh, lack of any xenophobia, racism, bigotry, dismissiveness towards Goyim. And remember, living in the West Bank, this is not an easy statement, and I remember deeply, I remember the, the arguments during the 80s where some much more radical right-wing settler Rabbanim. I remember, I was thinking about it the other day, the Haramite backstood, and Rev. Dov Lior, who's the leading Rabbanim, everyone said it's better that uh, 10 Palestinians, innocent Palestinians, lose their life than the fingernail of one IDF soldier be even slightly scratched. Reductio ad absurdum, which I don't subscribe to. Again, these are complex moral conversations. Again, it's better this, better that, but if you gave me a choice, and my fingernail should get a little scratch, and I could save 10 Palestinians' life, scratch away. We'll have to endure a little bit of distress. Again, they're not trying to scratch our fingernails, but if in theory that were the moral equivalency. Number three, which is a much, much larger conversation, is individualism. Israel and the religious Zionist community in Israel was, prom- was profoundly affected by Rav Cook. Rav Cook was a collectivist thinker. And I'm part of Am Yisrael, and where's Am Yisrael heading, and my decisions have to support this national historical movement, and I lose my identity, intentionally submit my identity to. And Rav Lichsing restored a lot of the individualism because individual such dignity has to, be, has to be conceived of and supported. So, for example, just to put it into, to frame it differently, should Pikuach Nefesh play a role in political and military decisions? Rav Gordon said no, because we view these decisions through a collectivist lens. Collectively, we have to go to war. In war, people lose their lives. So Pikuach Nefesh is not a factor in a collective calculus. 
with our thought that it was. And we have to consider individuals living in the country and individual lives that can be saved, potentially both sides of the fence, which is very, very unpopular. But that's just one small example, just to clarify it. But, and how we saw life and how he built us and how he built his yeshiva and how he encouraged our growth and our development. I once heard him say in a moment of transparency, we once asked him, someone once asked him, Rebbe, how come there's a disproportionate amount of Americans who become, who excel in yeshiva and Israelis don't have such aspirations? I don't know who said that. But like, certainly in the 80s, most of the people who were at the top of the yeshiva were either these Americans or or the Israeli who grew up in an American household, Yermi Savitsky, I don't know if you know all these names, and then the Israelis that came, they went, they moved. And I think Rav Aaron attributed this to this more individualism, ambition, personal identity. Whereas in Israel, it's part of the overall fold and part of the overall community. Am Yisrael's indistinguishable parts. The fourth answer is, and this, I think, uh, speaks to who Rav Aaron was, and I'll just end with this. Hillel, the Baskal came out and sided with Hillel. So why did the Baskal side with Hillel against Shammai? Because they were naim and they were kind and compassionate and they let Shammai speak first. That's a very jarring Gemara. You're deciding the future halachic authority for the rest of Jewish history based on morality. Give Hillel a moral award, like a graduation. You get the citizenship award. You know, you get the, the best the best Haramadinic award. Give Hillel an award for his morality rather than Pasuk. Pasuk should be based on who has the truth. Who drills down, who penetrates as deeply as possible to the truth of Torah? The answer is, we call Torah Rahmana. And at the heart of Torah is compassion and kindness. And if you're a kind person, you're not just a more moral person, you'll understand the depths and the mysteries of Torah better than the next person. And Hillel understood Torah more deeply precisely because they were Rahmana. Not that Bishamay weren't, but Bishamay applied the absolute perfectionist code. So we're not awarding Hillel because they were moral. We're awarding Hillel because we trusted their Torah because it synced better with Rahman Alibi. That's a And of a second ride, by the way. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai asked all of his Talmudim for um, what's the most important trait. So once the Shachin Tov, Ishatov, Aintov, what are Blazab and Arach? Say Leif Tov. loved that Mishnah. There's a story about that Mishnah also. And then Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai handed out nicknames to his Talmudim. What did you call it? Blazab and Arach? Blazab and Arach, Mayinam Skaber. Why is he a Mayan Miskaber? Because if you respect people, you'll accept their wisdoms. The same way an underground river becomes a large roaring river by being fed by other rivers. So a small Mayan becomes a Mississippi River because other Mayanas feed them. So it's not just that you're digging into the depths of Torah's compassion, you're also listening to other people's wisdoms and incorporating that. And that, you know, everybody I like to think about Rav from a different angle. It just struck me. Rav Aaron's wife talked about this a little bit. In his hesped for Lichensin in Hebrew in the Yeshiva. So if you're interested in go to Yu Torah, there's some echoes of this in his hesped. So this is Rav Aaron's view of halacha, but this is my ode to my Rebbe, based on uh, working very, very hard through this through this piece. So I hope I was able to bring it to sharper detail. You're welcome to read the article. <laughs> Wish you luck. Wish you luck. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.